This is Resident 104.4 FM. Flipping marvellous. How you doing? Tis I. <laughs> Nick Hennigan coming at you once more with a slice of literary London. Um, and we're really ingrained in London this time. Oh, yes. I found a new book at a new bookshop. It's not, it's not a new bookshop, actually. It's been there for quite a while. It's quite a new one to me. In Angel. It's called Upper Street Bookshop. Uh, an independent and rather a lovely little place it is, which I discovered uh, this week. Um, we're also celebrating Charles Dickens. Hang on, was it his birthday? Let me get this right. It was, of course, his birthday. 7th of February, 1812, our Chaz was born. Author of, of course, A Christmas Carol, which I'm internally grateful for because my version of it featuring and starring Guy Masterson uh, goes out every Christmas and might even buy me a Christmas pudding next year if things go well enough. Hmm? Yes, they will. Um, and, uh, well, a few other things along the way. As always, if you'd like to get in touch, you can do radio at mavericktheatre.co.uk. It's probably the easiest way via email. I must also as well mention the Resonance FM fundraiser, uh, because, as you may or may not know, Resonance FM is um, a charity. Uh, it's kind of a commercial radio station that chooses not to do commercial things, which is why we can do Literary London, and you will hear more of a variety of programming on Resonance uh, FM and, of course, the, the new digital service as well than possibly anywhere else. Anywhere else in the world. So we have a fundraiser, and I should give you some details about how you can get involved. Um, we're going to help out a little bit. We're going to donate a couple of tickets, or four tickets, I believe it is, to the London Literary Pub Crawl. So if you're London-based, or if you know you're going to be in London for the next, well, any time in the next year, really, I think there's no, <laughs> there's no, uh, they don't run out, um, then uh, I'll send you details, or at least I'll tell you details about how you could get involved in the Resonance FM fundraiser um, and win a couple of tickets to come on the London Literary Pub Crawl, which looks at the pubs that famous writers and creatives and one or two other rogues and vagabonds drank in learnt in, loved in, wrote in around central London uh, mainly Soho and Fitzrovia uh, so uh, yeah keep listening for that I shall give you some more details later on but first of all yes let's go back to the uh, <clears throat> excuse me Got a cold as well. So it's what you want when you're talking on a radio show. The Upper Street Bookshop. I actually went to um, a radio, um, Royal Television Society bash at the Design Centre in Angel, which is rather nice, isn't it? I shall put some pictures up on the uh, social media sites that we've got. Uh, in fact, there is a London Literary Pub Crawl Twitter. I think it's called At Literary Pubs. Have a look. I'll put some pictures up there. Um, and as I was on my way, I came into Angel for ages because I tend to be West London love. You know how it is. Mm? Yes. And I, uh, and I kind of stuck my head in and, I, you know, I can't really go past a bookshop. Do you know what I mean? I, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? I mean, you know, the, the Waterstones as well. Um, what I quite like about them, although they're kind of massive uh, in the UK, um, is that they have local writers' sections. <clears throat> First thing we do if we go to Wales, which we tend to quite a lot because as a friend gives us a place to stay very kindly. Thank you, Morrises. Uh, and the first thing we'll do is go into Aberystwyth and head down to the Waterstones because they've got their section on Welsh writing. And I kind of stuck my head in and I, <clears throat> excuse me, I came across a, a title uh, called, it's a modern classic, a Penguin modern classic by uh, Italo Calvino. It's called The Written World and The Unwritten World. And on the back of this book, uh, it's actually, I, I, I realise, because um, I read it in the literary review. Oh, yes, darling. Here we go. Look, I've got a literary review here. <clears throat> it's a new book, or it's a new translation of a story translated by uh, Anne Goldstein. Um, and I'd never, I'd never heard of him. And apparently he's a very famous writer. 
which I, I make no apology for. Um, the, uh, and on the back, the blurb said, if the world is increasingly senseless, all we can do is try to give it a style. Uh, and it's a, a non-fiction book, a collection of essays and stories. And the blurb goes on to say, the difference between life and literature, the good intentions of holiday reading, the avant-garde, the fate of the novel, the fantastical, the art of translation. These are just some of the ideas in the written world and the unwritten world. A collection of essays, articles, interviews, correspondence, notes, and other occasional pieces on writing, reading, and interpreting books. This work gives us a new insight into Italo Calvino's expansive, curious and generous mind. Available in English for the first time, it's an ingenious exploration of the meaning of literature from one of Italy's most beloved writers. Um, so, I like the little quote here, uh, Salman Rushdie, who mm. <coughs> said, um, Reading Calvino, you're constantly assailed by the notion that he's writing down what you have always known, except that you've never thought of it before. Great quote. So I stuck my head in. I thought, I'll have, I'll, have a, I'll have a slice of this. And I thought what I might do is share with you the very first story. Because <laughs> it reminds me of so many people that I know. And um, so I'll do it now. It's called Good Intentions. The good reader looks forward impatiently to his vacation. He has saved a certain amount of reading that interests him for the solitary weeks he'll spend at the beach or in the mountain. And... He can already taste the joy of siestas in the shade, the rustling of pages, surrender to the fascination of other worlds, excluded by densely printed pages. As the holidays approach, the good reader tours the bookshops, browses, sniffs, has second thoughts, returns the next day to buy. At home, he takes down from the shelf volumes whose pages are still uncut and lines them up between the bookends on his desk. It's the time when the mountain climber dreams of the peak he's getting ready to scale and the good reader, too, chooses which mountain to take on. For example, it could be one of the great 19th century novelists of whom we can never say we have read their entire oeuvre or whose mass has always somewhat awed the good reader, or whose works, read at different times and at different stages of life, have left fragmentary memories. The good reader has decided that this summer he will finally read that author. Maybe he won't be able to read everything during the vacation, but he will lay down a base of fundamental readings, and then during the year he'll be able to fill in the gaps easily in a leisurely way. So he acquires the works he intends to read in the original language, if it's one he knows, otherwise in the best translation. He prefers the large volumes of the collected work editions, but he doesn't dislike paperbacks, which are better for reading on the beach or under the trees or on the bus. He adds some good essays on the chosen author, or maybe a correspondence there. Now he has a solid company for his vacation. It can hail the whole time. His holiday companions can turn out to be hateful. The mosquitoes may be intolerable and the food inedible. The vacation will not be wasted. The good reader will return, enriched by a new imaginative world. Uh, this, obviously, is only the main course. Now he has to think of the side dishes. The good reader 
wants to keep up with the latest bookstore offerings then. There are new publications in his professional field and it's crucial to take advantage of these days to read them. He also has to choose some books that are different from the ones he's already chosen to provide the variety and possibility of frequent interruptions, repose and changes of tone. Now, the good reader has before him a very detailed reading plan. Now, for all occasions, hours of the day and moods. If he has a house available for his holidays, maybe an old house full of childhood memories, what could be better than to have a book for every room? One for the porch, one for the bedside, one for the chaise longue. It's the eve of departure. He's chosen so many books he'd need a trunk to transport them. The job of exclusion begins. Hmm, this one I won't read anyway. This is too heavy. Oh, this isn't urgent. And the mountain of books crumbles is reduced to half, to a third. Now the good reader has reached a selection of essential readings that will lend tone to his vacation. As he packs his suitcases, some volumes are left out. Thus the programme comes down to a few books, all but all substantial. These holidays will represent an improvement and important stage in the good reader's spiritual evolution. The days of vacation begin to pass swiftly. The good reader finds himself in excellent shape for sports and stores up energy to get into the ideal physical situation for reading. After lunch, however, he's so drowsy that he sleeps all afternoon. He has to react, and here the company, unusually pleasant this year, helps the good reader forms many friendships and morning and afternoon he's out in the boat or off on a tour and at night he's carousing until late. Reading, of course, requires solitude. The good reader thinks of a plan to get away. Cultivating his attraction to a blonde might be the best option. But with the blonde, he spends the morning playing tennis, the afternoon at canasta and the evening dancing in moments of leisure. She's never silent. The holiday is over. The good reader puts the untouched books back in the suitcase. Thinks of autumn, of winter, of the rapid, concentrated quarters of an hour granted to reading before he goes to sleep, before rushing to the office, in the tram, the dentist's waiting room. And I love, that, I love that short story. That well, short story, that little collection. 1952. That was written by uh, Italo Calvino. And it's from the book, the new book, uh, translated um, by Anne Goldstein. It's called The Written World and the Unwritten World. And uh, yes, I just wanted to share that with you because that kind of got me. And yes, the book is actually featured in um, uh, the, the Literary Live section of uh, Literary Review, the February uh, 23 edition of Literary Review, if you want to read a, a bit more about about um, about your man. Italo Calvino. I hope I've said that right. I don't know why I did the accent. But we're also celebrating here on Resonance FM 104.4. And of course, don't forget, we're on bohemianbritain.com, my new kind of blog, messy website review, place some videos, this radio show. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a mess. There's not much formality to it. Um, and, uh, but we're also going to be talking about, or at least celebrating the 7th of February, 1812, because 
it is the birthday, or it was the birthday, I should say, of none other than Charles Dickens, author of None Other, A Christmas Carol. But not only was he known for his famous books, of course, he also wrote uh, articles and journals, a bit a bit like our uh, menu discovery, uh, Calvino. Um, and he also wrote some interesting short stories. So I thought I'd play one for you now. So this is Charles Dickens, and it's called Mr. Testator's Visitation. Mr. Testator took a set of chambers in Lyons Inn when he had but very scanty furniture for his bedroom and none for his sitting room. He had lived some wintry months in this condition and had found it very bare and cold. One night, past midnight, when he sat writing and still had writing to do that must be done before he went to bed, he found himself out of coals. He had coals downstairs, but had never been to his cellar. However, the cellar key was on his mantel shelf, and if he went down and opened the cellar it fitted, he might fairly assume the coals in that cellar to be his. As to his landress, she lived among the coal wagons and Thames watermen, for there were Thames watermen at that time, in some unknown rat hole by the river, down lanes and alleys on the other side of the strand. As to any other person to meet him or obstruct him, Lyons Inn was dreaming, drunk, maudlin, moody, betting, brooding over bill discounting or renewing, asleep or awake, minding its own affairs. Mr. Testator took his coal scuttle in one hand, his candle and key in the other, and descended to the dismalest underground dens of Lyons Inn, where the late vehicles in the streets became thunderous, and all the water pipes in the neighbourhood seemed to have Macbeth's Amen sticking in their throats, and to be trying to get it out. After groping here and there among low doors to no purpose, Mr. Testator at length came to a door with a rusty padlock which his key fitted. Getting the door open with much trouble and looking in, he found no coals, but a confused pile of furniture. Alarmed by this intrusion on another man's property, he locked the door again, found his own cellar, filled his scuttle and returned upstairs. But the furniture he had seen ran on casters across and across Mr. Testator's mind incessantly when, in the chill hour of five in the morning, he got to bed. He particularly wanted a table to write at, and a table expressly made to be written at had been the piece of furniture in the foreground of the heap. When his laundress emerged from her burrow in the morning to make his kettle boil, he artfully led up to the subject of the cellars and furniture but the two ideas had evidently no connection in her mind. When she left him, and he sat at his breakfast, thinking about the furniture, he recalled the rusty state of the padlock, and inferred that the furniture must have been stored in the cellars for a long time, was perhaps forgotten, owner dead perhaps. After thinking it over for a few days, in the course of which he could pump nothing out of Lyons in about the furniture, he became desperate and resolved to borrow the table. He did so that night. He had not had the table long when he made up his mind to borrow an easy chair. He had not had that long when he made up his mind to borrow a bookcase, then a couch, then a carpet and rug. By that time he felt he was, in furniture, stepped in so far as that it could be no worse to borrow it all. Consequently, he borrowed it all, 
and locked up the cellar for good. He had always locked it after every visit. He had carried up every separate article in the dead of night, and at the best had felt as wicked as a resurrection man. Every article was blue and furry when brought into his rooms, and he would had, in a murderous and guilty sort of way, to polish it up while London slept. Mr. Testator lived in his furnished chambers two or three years or more, and gradually lulled himself into the opinion that the furniture was his own. This was his convenient state of mind when late one night a step came up the stairs and a hand passed over his door feeling for his knocker. And then one deep and solemn rap was rapped that might have been a spring in Mr. Testator's easy chair to shoot him out of it. So promptly was it attended with that effect. With a candle in his hand, Mr. Testator went to the door and found there a very pale and very tall man, a man who stooped, a man with very high shoulders, a very narrow chest and a very red nose, a shabby genteel man. He was wrapped in a long threadbare black coat fastened up the front with more pins than buttons, and under his arm he squeezed an umbrella without a handle, as if he were playing bagpipes. He said, I ask your pardon, but can you tell me? And stopped, his eyes resting on some object within the chambers. Can I tell you what? asked Mr. Testator, noting his stoppage with quick alarm. I ask your pardon, said the stranger, but this is not the inquiry I was going to make. Do I see in there any small article of property belonging to me? Mr. Testator was beginning to stammer that he was not aware when the visitor slipped past him into the chambers. There in a goblin way which froze Mr. Testator to the marrow, he examined first the writing table and said, Mine. Then the easy chair and said, Mine. Then the bookcase and said, Mine. Then turned up a corner of the carpet and said, Mine. In a word, inspected every item of furniture from the cellar in succession and said, Mine. Towards the end of this investigation, Mr. Testator perceived that he was sodden with liquor and that the liquor was gin. He was not unsteady with the gin, either in his speech or carriage, but he was stiff with gin in both particulars. Mr. Testator was in a dreadful state, for according to his making out of the story, the possible consequences of what he had done in recklessness and hardihood flashed upon him in their fullness for the first time. When they had stood gazing at one another for a little while, he tremulously began, Sir, I am conscious that the fullest explanation, compensation and restitution are your due. They shall be yours. Allow me to entreat that without temper, without even natural irritation on your part, we may have a little drop of something to drink, interposed the stranger. I am agreeable. Mr. Testator had intended to say a little quiet conversation, 
but with great relief of mind, adopted the amendment. He produced a decanter of gin and was bustling about for hot water and sugar when he found that his visitor had already drunk half the decanter's contents. With hot water and sugar, the visitor drank the remainder before he'd been an hour in the chambers, by the chimes of the Church of St. Mary in the Strand. And during the process, he frequently whispered to himself, Mine. The gin gone, and Mr. Testator wondering what was to follow it, the visitor rose and said with increased stiffness, At what hour of the morning, sir, will it be convenient? Mr. Testator hazarded. At ten? Sir, said the visitor, at ten to the moment I shall be here. He then contemplated Mr. Testator somewhat at leisure and said, God bless you. How is your wife? Mr. Testator, who never had a wife, replied with much feeling, Deeply anxious, poor soul, but otherwise well. The visitor thereupon turned and went away, and fell twice in going downstairs. From that hour, he was never heard of. Whether he was a ghost, or a spectral illusion of conscience, or a drunken man who had no business there, or the drunken rightful owner of the furniture with a transitory gleam of memory, whether he got safe home or had no home to get to, whether he died of liquor on the way or lived in liquor ever afterwards, he never was heard of more. This was the story received with the furniture and held to be as substantial by its second possessor in an upper set of chambers in Grim Lion's Inn. Oh, how about that? Yes, Mr. Testator's Visitation, beautifully read there, by Nigel Lambert, and we're celebrating the fact that Charles Dickens was born on the 7th of February, 1812. Pre-overture, yes. Um, another uh, birthday that we're going to be celebrating as well, because I, I like the music, uh, is young Victor Hugo. Well, he was young on the 26th of February, 1802. He was born 26th of February, 1802, went on to write Loads of stuff, including, of course, the classic novel Les Miserables, which now, by the way, is the world's most successful music. And a musical, I should say. And I'm quite pleased it is too, because I can do this. With me two days gone by, sing with me the songs we knew. Here's two pretty girls who went to our heads. Here's two witty girls who went to our beds. Here's to them and here's to you. Drink with me two days gone by to the life that you 
friendship never say die. Let the wine of friendship never run dry. Drink with me, Drink with me today. Now she goes across the sea Life without Cosette means nothing at all Would you weep, Cosette? Should marry us fall, will you weep, Cosette?
Ah, oh, wasn't that lovely? That was, uh, of course, I dreamed a dream. Before that, drink with me from Les Miserables. Happy birthday, Victor Hugo. Yes, indeed. Born on the 26th of February, 1802. And that's all we've got time for. Thank you for your time. I'll see you next time. I'm Nick Hennigan. This is Literary London on Resonance 104.4 FM. <laughs>